Please turn with me now to Zechariah, chapter 12. Zechariah, just before the New Testament, a couple of books before the New Testament. Zechariah, chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem." The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Tonight we come to Zechariah chapter 12. And as a reminder, we have now passed the point at which Zechariah, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking of his own day. Uh, The early chapters, most of it really has all been primarily directed to his own day, about the great work that remained for him and the people to do in rebuilding the temple. But we've now moved on from that, and you probably remember that last time in chapter 11, the focus was on that great messianic prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. And so that chapter was actually focused on what was going to happen in the days of Christ's earthly ministry. And now we even go beyond that. This section here in chapter 12 is now talking about what happens after the resurrection of Christ, the church age, the age in which we are currently in, of the church doing its work in this world, being opposed by the world, and the church yet prevailing. And that situation carrying on into the end. And so that some of these things are partially fulfilled right now, and they all are certainly fulfilled at the time of the end. 
And here we have it, what it says at the beginning, this burden of the Lord regarding Israel, something that may be a little bit strange because in almost all occasions when there's a burden, it's against some pagan nation. But here there's a burden of the Lord that actually in our translation has it against Israel. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily against Israel, it's regarding Israel. And the question, in what sense is it a burden? Well, Matthew Henry reminds us that the word of God that speaks terror to their enemies speaks peace to them as the pillar of cloud and fire, which turned a bright side toward the Israelites to direct and encourage them, but a black side toward the Egyptians to terrify and dispirit them. And so we're reminded of that, that the word of God is like a double-edged sword, that in one, side, one hand it is a source of great comfort, and on the, the other hand a source of disquiet and of fear. Well, anyhow, this, uh, as I finish uh, introducing this, this chapter, we see that there are really two portions of it. The, the beginning that is speaking of this great creator, God, and then strangely though, Strangely, though, at, at the end of it, it's now speaking of me whom they've pierced. So somehow this great creator God is also the one whom they have pierced. Now, of course, most of you probably know how those things fit together, but they are a glorious thing. And that is the, surely the, the topic, the, the subject of our sermon tonight. It is looking on the one whom they pierced, looking on the one they pierced. And with three points. First, the creator God. And secondly, the purest one. And thirdly, looking on the purest one as we consider how these wonderful things fit together. So first we speak of the creator God in in verse 1. The burden of the Lord, the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. That's a wondrous and glorious thought, isn't it? That the Lord who stretches out the heaven. I don't know if you've looked at some of those pictures, particularly from the Hubble Space Telescope. We have a, a whole book, sort of a coffee table book, that is nothing but these, uh, these large, high-resolution pictures that they've received from the Hubble Space Telescope. And it's enormous. It's, it's unbelievable. So many of these things that, that may immediately appear to be stars are actually galaxies. And these galaxies then contain not just hundreds of stars or thousands of stars, but millions of stars. And there are millions of these galaxies. It is an amazing, amazing thing. They truly are more than anyone can number these stars. You could not... The the scientists themselves, even though they have these instruments, though they have these computers to count them, they have not yet succeeded in actually counting all the stars that they are. But the Lord says, I spread them out. Like a curtain. You can imagine walking in your house to your curtain and opening the curtain or closing it. That is like the Lord in his spreading out the heavens, spreading out all of these stars. And that emphasizes, I think, the transcendence, the utter transcendence of the Lord. It's, uh, by the way, these ideas, some of them are found in the prophet Isaiah. You may remember from Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. And that's, of course, the idea that he wants us to begin with. That the innumerable stars and enormous galaxies, that God spread them out in, uh, in heaven like a curtain. Therefore, 
what should we think about our enemies? Therefore, what should we think about those who oppose us, those who belittle us, those who persecute us? Well, in the Lord's eyes, they are as grasshoppers. They are as grasshoppers, and we must keep that in mind because although it is not the emphasis of this particular sermon, it will recur certainly as we go to application. We think of how it is that God is going to protect his people, how it is that God is going to grant victory to us. And the only way that we can ever set the scene for a right attitude of our difficulties, a right attitude for our situation, is we think of God sitting in the heavens, casting out the stars as if they were a curtain, and in his eyes and in his mind, all the enemies of his people are as grasshoppers, and so they should be in our mind. Isn't it a, an amazing reversal of the situation of the people of Israel as they send out the spies into the land, and the, the land is filled with giants, and they come back and they say, we are like grasshoppers in their eyes, and so we are in our own eyes, and that's why they're so afraid that they, have to, they want to give up. But the Lord says, don't forget what they look like in my eyes. And I can tell you they look like grasshoppers in the eyes of the creator of the universe. Well, that's emphasizing his transcendence, but it also goes on to say, and forms the spirit of man within him. And that adds the element of God being the creator of each individual person in particular. And don't forget that. He's not the God of the deist who just made this machine of the world and set it in motion. He has created each and every one of us. He has created us in body and in soul. He has formed the spirit of man within him. He's the creator of us in particular. Again, both of these elements are found in Isaiah. In this case, in chapter 44, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone. And that's the idea then. It is not just that he has formed everything out there, but he has formed you in here. He has formed us even in the womb of our mother. We say, isn't this just biological process? No, the Lord claims ownership of that. He says, no, I have created you in every part. And we cannot forget that he is both our creator and if we are are his people, he is also our redeemer. There is none to be, no redemption to be found anywhere else but in him. And this is the one that is talking to us and we must not forget it. So now, that is the first person. That is the speaker of this whole chapter. Point number two, the purest one. Okay, so the creator God is speaking, and now we think about the purest one. In verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now notice that word me is capitalized in the New King James, and rightly so, rightly so, because there has been perfect continuity throughout this, this, this uh, uh, narrative. It is not that some human author has now injected himself. It is that the Lord God himself is speaking, and he says, me whom they have pierced. Now please do not skip to the, the ending. You know how this ends. You know how I'm going to resolve this, most of you. But please don't skip there. Think for a moment, this creator God that looks out in the whole universe and all those galaxies and said, they're like a curtain to me that I open and close. And then he says, me whom you have pierced, the one whom you have pierced. And you you ask, how on earth is that possible? How is it that God himself could come to any harm whatsoever, let alone that he could be pierced through? How could it be? 
because that is indeed what the word means. How could he be pierced? Well, that's what it says. And what we know, because we know that God is a spirit, we know that eternal God is a spirit, we know that the only way for that to happen is for him to take on human flesh. It had to happen. That's the mystery of the incarnation that we were reminded of not so long ago in this Christmas season. It gives an occasion for us to be reminded of the incarnation. It is a wonder. It is an amazing thing that God should take on human flesh. And we cannot forget that the reason why he did it, I mean, there are many reasons, yes. But the principal, the primary, the irreducible reason why he had to do it was so that he could be pierced. So that he could come to harm. As he is in his eternal self, there is no harm that could possibly come to him. But actually the Son of God took on human flesh just so that he could be pierced by the hands of men. And of course that is perfectly in line with the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, they look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And that sounds so very familiar, doesn't it? Because that is precisely the passion narrative. That is precisely what happens in the gospel and the death of Christ. They do those things. The wicked did surround him. They did stare at Christ. They did cast lots for his clothing. They did. These, those Roman soldiers had never even come across this Old Testament prophecy. And there they were fulfilling it down to its, this perfect detail and casting lots for the clothing of Christ. And most importantly, they pierced his hands and feet in crucifixion. That's what they did. They pierced his hands and feet. But it wasn't just his his hands and feet. That was before he died. That was the means of fixing him to the cross. But it goes on. There's another kind of piercing. In John 19, it chronicles it for us. Then his soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. This is, of course... In this day of the, the day before the, the high Sabbath, that they wanted to, to hasten their death, this cruel death of crucifixion, and by breaking their legs, it would, it would hasten their death. And they were about to do this to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it, they didn't need to, because when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you might believe. For all these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That was done in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, so that he would be pierced. He certainly was, with that massive Roman sphere. And the question is, why was he pierced? We, um, we wonder at how it is that God himself could say of himself that he was pierced. We think of the wonder of the incarnation, but the question is, why? The answer, again, in, in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he then appeared in his, in his risen body, 
This body that yet bore these marks. And he could say to doubting Thomas, you don't believe that I rose again. You don't believe it could possibly be. Well, look, why don't you put your, your finger here in my, my hands and put your hand in my side. Such was the, the width and depth of that wound. And it remains with him, doesn't it? As a reminder forever that he bore the sins of his people. He was pierced for our transgressions. He bore these things on the cross. Well, this was, he, he is the almighty and holy God, but in Christ he is also the pierced one. And thirdly, we can look on this pierced one. Looking on the pierced one in verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, before we get to what all the rest of this means, we have to ask, what is the agent of change? What is it that has changed their hearts? So often we have found that they are hard-hearted. So often we have found that, for instance, the people of Israel, what did they do when God sent them a shepherd, when God took pity on them, that they were as sheep having no shepherd, and that they were going astray and sent his own son to be their shepherd, to speak to them in order that they might repent. What did they do to him? Well, we know that they took him outside and they killed him. What then is going to be the change that's going to bring about a repentance of this people? What's going to change them? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit. He will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. That is the only thing that's going to do it. This agent of supernatural change. You know, that, that it's one of the, I was reminded again of the church and its health has always emphasized the absolute irreducible necessity of supernatural regeneration. What do I mean by that? I mean what Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. I mean that you cannot possibly enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And the only way that that happens is by the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit doing that, you are only flesh. And what is flesh is flesh. It remains that way. It remains on this earth and does not make it to heaven. But only the Holy Spirit can can work in us the change, the almighty change, a great change of our nature that we might believe in his truth. Again, John 3, 5 says, John, Jesus answered to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so it is in the valley of dry bones. He looks out in this valley of dry bones, and it's this beautiful picture of exactly what people are apart from the Holy Spirit. They're dead. They're dry bones. And no cultural transformation project is going to change that. You can... You could have a new wonderful project uh, called, we could call it the Valley of Wet Bones, and you could bring in pipe, uh, water purification and pipes and all the rest of it, and you could irrigate that place, but they wouldn't come to life. The only thing that would change that is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, God's prophet speaks to them, and they come to life. And that's how it works, you see. 
God's Holy Spirit brings spiritual life to them in order that they might have ears to hear and eyes to see that which they would never see, that which they would never receive before, that which they'd never believe. And God brings this, to cha- this wonderful change through his spirit. And what's the result? The result is that then they will look on me whom they pierced. They, they, they were the ones who pierced him. They wanted him dead. And, and in a way, of course, this particularly applies to those who lived in that time in Jerusalem in a certain way. But it applies in a general way to all natural human beings. Because there is enmity between God and man. We don't like Jesus Christ. We don't want him to reign over us. And if we had the spear in our hand, we would do the same. But now, now they're looking at him. They are looking at that one who has pierced. They, they're pierced. Funny enough, that is, by the way, precisely the very next thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus. Right after he says, you must be born again. You need the Holy Spirit. You know what he goes on to say? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is, again, the beautiful picture. What was so wonderful about the, golden, or sorry, the bronze serpent that was lifted up? Some new medicine that no one had discovered before? No, no, no. It was an emblem, you see, a type, that something that is being lifted up, that all you have to do is look at it, and you're saved. That's what Jesus is like. He's lifted up on the cross, and all you have to do is look out on, in him in faith, and you will be saved. It's no superstition. We don't have a cross here, and we're not going to get one, because we're not looking at some physical object. In fact, that's why they had to get rid of that serpent of the Old Testament. People started worshiping it instead of God. No, you look at Christ. You look at Christ in, in faith, and you will be saved. That is what it is. You're looking on the one whom they pierced. Now, during the church age, we are thankful that many people will indeed repent and look on Christ in faith. The beginning of that prophecy began to be fulfilled even in Jesus' own time, even in the days and months after that event of they, they piercing him. Some of those who had a hand in his being pierced, in his being put to death, would, in the space of just a month and a half, come to repentance and faith. And no doubt others of their kind did in the, in the time afterwards. And so it is, in fact, that there have been a innumerable multitude of people being brought to faith in this way in the church age. And so in one sense, they are looking on the one whom they pierce in faith, but in another sense, they will also one day be looking at the one they pierced in a different way, in fear and in trepidation, because that's what we have in the Revelation. In Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, the mourning that we have in this chapter speaks, I think, rather of people repenting. And they, they say, like those in the days of Acts, in the days of Peter preaching that, they were cut to the heart when it says, This Jesus whom you crucified, they repented. Those ones that had a hand in the death of Christ, they said they were cut to the heart. And they turned away. They mourned for these things. And in fact, God then received them as repentant sinners into his church. Now, if you can do that, if that happens to you during the church age, during the time, during the day of salvation, during your lifetime on this earth, then praise God you are saved. But all people one day, all people one day will look on this one whom they pierced 
And there will be a different kind of mourning at the end. It will not be a mourning towards repentance. It will be a warning in, in terror of coming judgment. And the kings, this is, this is Revelation 6.15, And the kings of the earth, the great men and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The answer is no one. And then it will be too late. They will mourn, and there will be no remedy for them. And isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful, though, that the overall thrust of what we have, that though that will be the case in the end, that the day of salvation is today, and in particular, that God himself, speaking in the first person as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, says, Me, whom you crucified, me whom you pierced, they, the one whom they pierced, they will look on me. They will look on my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will grant them salvation. That is an, a wondrous mercy. That is an amazing grace. That speaks to the long-suffering and the patience of God in granting that, yes, the one who is looking out, the one who is in heaven now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, he retains those, those scars, those places where he was pierced by man, And he says, look on me in faith and I will save you. That's wonderful. Well, now in application, I have three particular applications. Don't forget that the Lord will uphold his people is the first one. Because I think that that is yet the great and mighty theme of Zechariah. That even though the time has, has completely changed, we are no longer in Zechariah's day at all. We are now in our own day. And what we used to be applying only by sort of a, a process of transfer or an a, a application of principle, now this is precisely what he was talking about. Zechariah probably didn't even understand what he was saying in the fullness of what we do. And this is now speaking to us. But the same theme applies, the same thing that was said with such perfect clarity earlier on in the book, which is strengthen the hand, strengthen your arm, do the thing that you're called to. Now it is being said to us, it's particularly in the church age. And what it says in Zechariah 12, starting in verse 8, uh, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now again, we are talking essentially about the church because we are building the new Jerusalem. It's not a place anymore. It is God's people primarily. And what it is saying that right now we are not alone in the work. We are not alone on this, this business of being faithful unto the end. This is God's business. It is his wisdom to allow us sometimes to be beset by trials and difficulties. There will be persecution. But I'm reminded, as we were in the Edwards group going through the history of work of redemption, what happens, by the way, when the church is persecuted? What happens when those, those Jewish people who are stubborn in their, their unbelief persecuted the church? The church was not eradicated. The church grew. In fact, by their very persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem. So the gospel went everywhere. 
And then what happened as the, the Romans sought like everything to destroy the church in 10 different periods of persecution over a couple of centuries? What happened? Did they win? No, they didn't win. No, the church got more and larger and larger till it, it covered the whole earth. And in fact, the Roman Empire was the one that was destroyed and the church carries on. We look back in history books at this empire that no longer is. And the nation that is in that land of of Rome is not a particular great superpower, is it? But the church continues on and on and on. And God in his wisdom does that. We must remember that that is the fundamental point of reference. That God is with us, God is for us, and he is blessing his own church. And he's going to make us strong. That's the beautiful thing, the great point of application for us as we face this, for many of us going back to work and looking at a long year of, of labor before us. In verse 8, the one who is feeble among them, shall, them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And I understand that there's an element where that will not be completely and finally fulfilled until the very end. But there is most definitely a partial fulfillment even in this time. We've already talked about Acts. Who was preaching, by the way, that sermon, which they were cut to the heart? Peter. Where was he a few days before that? Not, not so great, right? Was he not weak? He certainly was weak. And yet God made him to be like David. And so it is like with the rest of God's people. He delights in using weak vessels and in doing great things through us. And church history is absolutely full of examples just like it, of God making use of weak people, making them strong because the Lord desires to bless his own church. And we should expect that. We should pray for it. And I don't just mean, of course, those who are professional ministers, I mean to say in all of our many vocations, in the home and outside of the home, that God is able to make us strong. We should, we should uh, depend upon it. Not in our own strength, but that God might make us strong to his glory. And secondly, I would say that there is a particular application for the Jews. And we ought to remember the Jews. That is our second application. Because there are some particularly Jewish aspects of this. If we were to read through that passage again, you'd notice things like the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem... There's a mourning in Jerusalem, then the family of the house of David by themselves, a family of the house of Nathan, the family of the house of Levi, the family of the house of Shimei, and so forth. And as I say, I think it is right that we understand this primarily to speak of the people who spiritually are Jews through faith in Christ, because that is primarily the sense in which the New Testament takes it, as primarily the sense in which it's understood in the book of Romans, that we are grafted onto this. That we become this new Jerusalem through faith in Christ. And he has made the two to become one. But maybe, just maybe, we cannot forget what it also says in Romans 11.25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And so it may, it may be that God may yet bring great numbers of ethnic Jews to faith. And we should pray for that. And we should particularly pray as we know that we have a notable uh, community of Jewish people living here in Gateshead. And we ought to pray and work towards that end. 
Thirdly and finally, we once again turn, come to prayer. I've mentioned that this is rightly very often a time which we, we look to prayer, we, and we, if rightly so, we ought to be in a season of prayer. And as we had in verse 10, the Holy Spirit is among other things, what? The spirit of supplication. That's what he is. You know, spiritually lifeless people, spiritually dead people are prayerless people. That is one thing that is almost without exception. The one thing that a hypocrite is unlikely to be doing is to be praying in secret. Give him a ritual and he'll do it. Tell him to go on pilgrimage, he'll go to the ends of the earth. Tell him to give, he might even do that. But ask him to pray in secret and he is much less likely to do such a thing. But on the other hand, those who have the Spirit of God will be moved to prayer because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of supplication. And that is what we who are Spirit-led, like Romans 8.26 says, the Spirit helps our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so I would say then, that as we have been the, the beneficiaries of God pouring out his Holy Spirit in the, the later age, in the later days on his people. And he's given us spiritual life. It is a spirit of supplication and that we should be much in prayer, particularly as we look forward to this new year. And just along those lines, one particular aspect of this application of prayer, just to carry on with one of the applications I had this morning, uh, I would just remind us of what Job used to do, Job 1.5. So it was... When the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would sin and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all of his children. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. And thus Job did regularly. And so those who are fathers, those who are heads of households, have a particular onus, a particular burden, a particular responsibility to pray for those in their household, even as Job did, to be, as it were, the priest for them. But again, for all of us, as we have opportunity and we have occasion, and we, we, we sometimes, we rightly complain against other religions that have a very ritualistic idea of prayer and artificial set times and days for prayer, we reject those things. But let us not reject any impetus whatsoever to pray. Let us find reasons to pray rather than neglect them. And so particularly we ought to do so in this time. In fact, let us pray now. Our great Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed that you have been merciful to us. We who are sinners, we who are in our natural situation would surely have rejected Christ, would indeed have fallen in with that crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Lord, were we there and were in our situation, no doubt we ourselves would have pierced him. And what an amazing thing that you would ever allow the Son of God to be pierced through in such a way. Lord, we know it is the only way that we could be saved. He was indeed pierced for our transgressions, for our sin. And we are thankful, Lord, for the blood and water that flowed from that wound, signifying to us and pointing to us the, the fountain that comes from him that cleanses all who come for forgiveness in Christ. And Lord, we once again cry out for all those here that might not have yet put their faith in Christ that they would, 
And Lord, how we pray in particular as we face a new year that we would, we would be strengthened with the reality that you delight in making weak vessels to be strong. You delight in making us to be able to do things that we could not imagine. And Lord, we know that this is not at all on our own strength, but Lord, particularly the foundation of it comes because we have the spirit of supplication within us and we are therefore enabled to pray great things in order that you might do them in our lives and for us and particularly for the church. We ask, Lord, that you'd enable us to do this all to the glory of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.